Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Morning to our friends, our guests with us today. It's a wonderful Sunday indeed. For some of you that are new with us, you might not be wondering, boy, things look so barren in here. You know, you meet in a school, there's no stained glass windows, there's no big uh, accoutrements and ambiance and, uh, and so forth and so on. And you got the worship team over here to the side. That's not by coincidence. Just so you know, we're just about, we're just a simple church about the sufficiency of Scripture. So the focus is not on performance in worship. So our praise team, and thankfully our Pastor George is all about that, is off to the side. Um, we don't need a lot of decorations. All we need is the goodness of God. We just need His Word. We just need His Spirit. And so that's what we focus on here. So that's all, that's all intentional, just to help you with that. And also, I, I do want to begin by saying... This week marks one of my favorite national holidays, um, Independence Day, of course, Tuesday, and America celebrates its 247th birthday, and that was signified, for those of you who don't know or don't remember, by the Declaration of Independence, and make no mistake about it, I want you to know this, that document, the foundation of this country, was greatly influenced by the Bible, and many a God-fearing founding father, even though many of them were not all born-again Christians or followers of Jesus. We're pretty sure of that if you read Jefferson's biography and Franklin and so forth, but they were all greatly influenced by and acknowledged the blessings of God in birthing this nation from a Christian culture. In fact, later this month, my son David and I are going to go on our biannual kind of sort of father-son trip, and we're going to go to Boston, where we're going to visit the home of our second president, one of our favorite founding fathers, John Adams. And in case you don't know, he also served as the chairman of the American Bible Society. And he said this, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And he was a church deacon, by the way, also. And he was referring to Christianity as the dominant religion here at the time. And his son, John Quincy, our sixth president, he added this on Independence Day, 1821, quote, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity, end quote. Now, what do you think more than half of this country's citizens, half of our Congress, and the White House would think of those comments today? I think they'd want to curse whoever said them, and they would curse those words. But it has to be acknowledged, to be honest. This country was founded in a Christian culture by God's common grace and providence and that's what formed, shaped the common core values that our nation once held. And the accent is on once held. Because 
slowly but not so surely, anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear understands that's no longer the case. It's been said we live in a post-Christian culture, after-Christian culture. In fact, many Americans know little about or could care even less about the heritage of this nation. And what it does, I think it resembles in some ways the first century church that Jesus was a part of, which we might describe as a pre-Christian culture, meaning the faith, the church, was brand new to the world. Our brothers were thought of at that time as being a little strange, a little cultish by the secular majority back then. And it looks like we've come full circle to something like that 2,000 years later. But you know what? I actually want to encourage you today in the midst of this because there are many of you in this room who are saddened and frustrated by the state of our union morally, as I am. And God's Word, though, tells us that He exalts the humble, and that means He has to humble the exalted. And He will humble us if we don't humble ourselves. That's the case not only for individuals, but for nations, earthly kingdoms. And so I'm going to encourage you today, actually, with the July 4th news, that we, the church, get this, the church will be exalted, I hope in the not-too-distant future, and when we do, we're going to be rewarded in that exaltation. And I know that because in our text today, we get a perfect example of that event to come and what that's going to look like a little bit. Because here we arrive at the end of a passage of Scripture that really goes back to the beginning of chapter 2 in Philippians, where the Apostle Paul's given us a look-see at the perfect God and man, Jesus Christ, as the perfect picture of perfect humility, perfect obedience, and perfect love, and as an example of how we should live and love one another in perfect unity, even in the midst of the diversity of people that we are. And then today we're going to apply that one step further. There are rewards coming, folks, from God, perhaps now, and for sure in the age to come for our faithfulness to Christ, for living lives that Paul calls worthy of the gospel, and for humbling ourselves because Paul has taught the church harmony and humility is the way to unity. Why? Because humility is what kills pride. We talked about that. And last time we saw the perfect picture of that how-to, which was the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus, the exalted God-man, risen Lord and Savior, He suffered humiliation. He suffered the cross to save us and then serve as our example. But that's not the end of the story, of His story, history. God in the flesh is coming back to set up, to rule and reign over His kingdom on earth. And that's where we find the reward for His humiliation. And guess what? It's going to be our reward too. I'm going to show you that in two ways. We're going to talk about the office of the king and the lordship of the king. Let's start with the office of the king. Look at your text in verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Church, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay, that's an incredi incredibly important word in Scripture because it's another way of saying so that or because. 
And that serves as an example, really an explanation of what's just been said. And that is that Jesus being the perfect picture or example, the model of pride-killing humility that we should follow, he's going to be exalted again. So Paul told us what to do. Look at verse 3. If you go back a little further up, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's that word, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And then we get the how-to from Jesus, how he did it. Verse 7, but he emptied himself, meaning he laid aside his privileges and position as God in the flesh, by taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, once again, humbled himself. He lowered himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, right there, you could say, okay, is that it? Is that the end of the story? The end of the lesson? Because we get it, as hard as it is, right? Love, and the harmony, the church family, it's achieved when we're selfless rather than selfish. But what's the payoff? Are there rewards aside from unity in the church? And yes, Jesus is going to be the example of that. Because God raised up Jesus, folks, in more than one way. He elevated him to the highest honor, the highest place you could be. That's what the word exalted literally means. In the world, our Lord, God in the flesh, in fact, has been exalted twice since he became God in the flesh, incarnated. Because he was already exalted there in glory at the right hand of the Father and with the Spirit in heaven. But we saw toward the end of our time in Mark's gospel, Jesus was exalted, remember? Literally, figuratively, he ascended to the right hand of the Father at the throne after being resurrected. You know, he died, he rose, he ministered, he stayed for about six weeks in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, and he ministered to his apostles, and then right before his very eyes, according to Acts 1 and 2, he was taken up. He was exalted in glory. And that's where Jesus invisibly, invisibly rules and reigns right now with the Father. However, the second exaltation of our Lord, which is what we're waiting for, I can't wait for it, is going to be visible, and it's going to be known to everyone on this planet. And that is the nature of his office. His title, that's the name or the office that's a reward for him. So what is that name that's above every other name in world history? It's not Jesus per se. You would think Jesus. And Jesus is a great name, by the way. Jesus literally means in the Hebrew, Jehovah saves. And Jesus, Jesu in the Greek, Yeshua would be the transliteration in the Hebrew, is where we get the English name Joshua from, actually. And it's a, it's a great name, but that's not the name that Paul is talking about that's above every name. It is Lord. L-O-R-D, capital L. Now, normally that word, it's just a noun, kurios, that would mean a master. Uh, someone who is a ruler over property or slaves or something like that. But in the Bible, it's capitalized as a proper noun. It's the title of an office. It's someone you would refer to who is a sovereign, who is a king. That's fitting. And get this, Lord is equivalent to the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, 
which is a name so sacred, the proper name of God, the Jews wouldn't even pronounce it. They wouldn't touch it. In fact, they practically created for themselves this pronunciation, Yahweh, from the consonants that make up this name of God because they wanted to avoid God's judgment for mispronouncing or misusing his name. So when they were reading the scripture and they came to where it says Yahweh, they would read Adonai. Adonai means Lord, the Hebrew word for Lord. And that's how Jesus is referred to, interestingly enough, all over the New Testament. And what it is, it's the title that office was bestowed upon him from God. Bestowed. What does that mean? That's just an old word. In the original Greek, it comes from the root of the word grace. God graced, gave as a gift, unmerited this office, God the Son, God the Father, to God the Son. He's basically saying, Son, you're going to be the king of the earth, and the earth is going to be your kingdom. And so we go right from the office of the Lord. I want to take you now to the lordship of this king, the lordship of the king. Verse 10. He's going to get this name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now that's a quote. Paul is actually going to Isaiah 45 here. And he's actually quoting God speaking to Isaiah to take these words to the nation of Israel. When it says in Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So we're talking about the lordship of Christ that follows his office. This is the reward from the Father to the Son. That's why it says, so that. It's the submission, the submission of kingdom citizens to their king. That's a reward for Jesus. This is what the, pro the Father promised to give the Son from eternity past. It was predicted. It was prophesied. Isaiah 52, Daniel, that prophet, said this in Daniel 7, 14, talking about that Son of Man, the Messiah to come. He said, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and the kingdom, his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Amen to that. So you see, that, that position of deity that Jesus enjoyed and all those privileges of his divinity that he voluntarily laid down and his humility when he came here as a man, that's going to be restored back to him when the God-man returns. So that's reward in his exaltation. He's going to receive the praise, the adoration, the thanks, the respect, the reverence, the love, the obedience he's due. He's earned it perfectly. You know, he was mocked as a king, king of the Jews during his passion, his suffering. When he comes back, he's going to be worshipped and exalted as king of all. Everyone will literally, it says, bow the knee. That was an act of worship in the Middle East. It's a picture not only of fear, 
reverence to whom you're bowing to, but it's a picture of submission. It's a picture of humbling oneself like the Jews were always commanded to do before God. Jesus, in his incarnation, he made other people more important than himself. He served others, but now when he comes back in the reward of his exaltation and his worship, everyone else is going to bow to him. Everyone else is going to serve him. So submission. Let's talk about submission. To submit is to come under, come under and obey a greater authority than yourself. Could be a person, could be an office. It's actually a military term in the Greek that means to fall in line, line up like if, as if you're in rank. And the name in the office of Lord is about, again, authority. In fact, the Great Commission, think about this, begins with the acknowledgement of that when Jesus said to his disciples on the mountain, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he gives the Great Commission to his apostles and to the church by extension that you are to therefore make mature, multiply disciples. Now you might be thinking, okay, how is this even possible? You're telling me, pastor, that your unredeemed, our unredeemed and unbelieving friends and fellow American citizens, they don't bend the knee to Christ now. No way, no how. You're telling me they're going to do that in the future? Like are they going to be forced to? Answer, yes. Verse 11 tells us that when Paul writes, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tongue there just refers to a spoken language. I love this glorious day to come. One day, coming sooner than later, I hope and pray, everyone, get this, Everyone that has ever lived and died is going to openly acknowledge and declare that Jesus is Lord of all the earth, including all the God and Christ rejectors that have ever lived. It's going to be a good day. It's true. That familiar word translated as confess there, we know what that means. It means to agree with God or to admit something. And not only is that necessary for you to be saved, right, to come to Christ, admitting you're a sinner, but also admitting who Jesus is, God and Lord. And you know, I, this is so important. This idea of the Lordship of Christ, we have to pause here for a moment. And we say, why? I think we were talking about this in the foyer area earlier today, hundreds of thousands of professing believers of Jesus, and maybe even some in this room, love to think of Jesus as just their savior, their parachute from hell, just by simply believing in him as a historical figure, who he is, what he did, we know the facts, crucified, resurrected. Those facts are essential. There's some faith in that. But in that alone, there's no repentance unto salvation there. That's the other side of the salvation coin. You can't be saved without both sides of the coin. Repentance and faith. 
The book of James, as an example, tells us the devil believes and shudders. Why isn't the devil a Christian? He, he believes. He knows who Jesus is, calls him the son of God. He won't repent. He won't submit to the lordship of Christ. Born-again Christian believers do that. See, most Americans understand the concept of Jesus as Savior. We know what John 3.16 says. It's all over. You'll see it in the background of stadium shots on TV and all that kind of thing. What keeps most people out of the kingdom of God in heaven is just one word. It's repentance. It's the failure to confess sin and then to want to turn from it by turning to God and trusting in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior, as the master or sovereign of your life, who you must obey in order to be saved. That's quite a bit harder to do. Because of that, if you do that, if you really repent, then you're acknowledging that God is the king of your life. He's the Lord of your life, and that means you no longer are. The days of you running your life, living however you want in your, in your flesh, is over when you come to Christ. That's why Jesus said what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Destruction means condemnation, means judgment. And those that enter by it are what? Many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Life refers to the kingdom of heaven. And those who find it are what? Few. There's no number on that. But everyone in this room should know what many means and what few mean. So my prayer is that everyone in this room and everyone that's going to listen to this later, online or wherever, our friends, our family, our loved ones, are going to confess Jesus now, since that's the requirement for being saved, rescued from the judgment of hell, so that they can enjoy fellowship with him and his church in perfect peace and joy now and forevermore. Because those that don't confess him as Lord and Savior today in this lifetime, they will bow their knees. They will confess him as Lord tomorrow, meaning forevermore, out of his presence in suffering and in torment. That's the difference. See, this truth is universal because his lordship, the text says, is over all the heavens and the earth. That literally means terrestrial and extraterrestrial. In fact, it includes those under the earth. That's the Greek word we get subterranean from. And that means everybody that's dead. We're talking every member of the human race is involved here over human history. We're talking about the devil. Demons, angels, principalities, powers. Every being that's ever been created and taken a breath, everybody that's ever lived and died will bow the knee, will confess Jesus as Lord. Paul in Romans 14 said, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 
That's all inclusive, isn't it? Either you're dead or you're alive. As the psalmist told us, one day all creation will glorify and honor God. Listen to the cry, in fact, in Revelation 5, according to the Apostle John, where it says, And I heard, John says, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Folks, you don't have to worry about voting for Jesus as President of the United States. Jesus is going to be king of the planet, Amen. totally, of everybody. Remember what Colossians 1 said about Christ being not only the, the head, the body of the church. It means he's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead in that he might be preeminent, supreme over everything. That means lordship. He's sovereign ruler of all. He is first priority in everything. Meaning, in other words, everyone will ultimately confess Jesus as Lord. That's what Paul's driving at here. So if you confess Jesus as Lord in this lifetime, okay, you're going to get reward. You're going to receive joy now, perfect joy, glory, and eternity, okay, with him. That's now. But if you wait too long... You don't confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior today or tomorrow, and you die without having confessed Christ, you're getting a reward. You're getting something. It's not quite what you would wish for, though, because it's going to be everlasting punishment in the lake of fire and where you will confess him as Lord for eternity. See, it's one or the other. You will confess and know Jesus as your Lord one way or the other. And you'll know it. You'll see it. So you're probably wondering then after hearing all this, um, when is it going to happen? The sooner the better, right? So yeah. Well, as we're thinking about the 4th of July and American Independence Day, does this mean that the exaltation of Christ is that day of the Lord where God makes Jesus' enemies a footstool, and this maybe this country will be Christian again then. Wouldn't that be a reward for Christians in America? Well, let me say this first. His return does usher in the day of the Lord. That involves a lot of judgment. But I have to tell you something else, and this may be a little bit hard to swallow for some of you. The United States is not mentioned in the Bible. God does not owe this country anything. He could revive this nation by reviving the church first in repentance and holiness. That would be awesome. I'd love to see that. We should pray for that. We should strive for that. But our reward and exaltation is not going to be one country above all others being revived. Our reward is going to be personal. When Jesus returns and raises us in our resurrection bodies, we're going to come back with him and rule and reign in his earthly kingdom. It's a worldwide kingdom. It's not just the U.S. of A. His reward will result in our reward, which is being part of the kingdom to come. I mention that because there's a movement you've probably read about, heard about, among some Christians today, well-meaning, very patriotic, they love this country, but they believe that we should use a degree of political force to coerce 
law. Christian law is part of American law. Or to enforce a certain politics and policy a certain way, part of our cultural mandate. It's an idea to Christianize America. Some call it Christian nationalism. You may have heard that term before. It comes in other names. In fact, some in that movement have suggested the Apostles' Creed become uh, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, those kinds of ideas, however great they may sound, go even way further than what the Founding Fathers had intended. But what we have to remember as we think about July 4th this week and the state of our union are Jesus' words, get this, when he went before Pontius Pilate. Remember, the Jews sent him to Pilate. He had been falsely accused already, persecuted. They wanted to kill him. Remember, Pilate is the governor of Judea. He has that Romans 13 God-ordained authority to rule and reign, even over Christ and his humanity at that time. He could condemn Christ or set him free. And he asks Jesus the question, Are you the king of the Jews? It's a pretty big question because... Just about everyone in this room would like him to be the king of the world in this country right now, right? And Jesus responded this way in John 18, verse 36. He answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Here it is. Why? Why is he king? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus and his church are not about ruling and reigning in this age, in the flesh, we should say, over a particular nation at this time, right? There's no indication from Scripture that Jesus is primarily interested in America or any country becoming an officially Christian nation or being culturally Christian. Remember, Jesus lived in a very culturally pious, holy nation called Israel. They were made up of millions of people, God-fearing people. But they were Christ-rejecting and they were hell-bound. God's not interested in creating or restoring a nation full of superficial, self-righteous Pharisees like Paul used to be. His purpose was preaching truth. Therefore, that must be ours. Now, let me say this. If the U.S. is more Christian because of the influence of the church, of Christian influence over our laws and public policy... That's great. I'm all for that. I'll tell you right now, as the election season are just getting underway, hey, vote like a biblical Christian. Amen? Let's influence this nation by how we walk and talk. But the idea is not having a Christian country by identity. It's by influence. That's the Jesus way. He said, my kingdom, my rule and reign, my dominion, is not of this world, meaning this time, this age in which he was first here and the church age continues through this day. Even better, I'll tell you what, 
even better would be that we became more of a Christian nation, listen, because more Christians are in it. By people coming to Christ, obeying the Great Commission, and leading more people to Christ. Amen? Does that sound like Christ? And speaking of which, please don't fall for the idea of the Christ rejecter who comes to you and says, you know, I'm good, no worries, I believe in God. In God we trust. I pledge allegiance to the flag. I believe God is Lord. Their problem is they talk a lot about God, but they leave out Jesus. That doesn't cut it according to Paul in the text. You have to confess, declare Jesus Christ as Lord today in order to be saved. Jesus even, in fact, rebuked the Jews in John 5. He said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's a package. You can't have God the Father without God the Son and vice versa. So that's why I preach to you and to all of you, and you should preach to everyone what it says in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart He has been raised, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or declared right, and with the mouth one confesses, there is that word again, and is saved. So as I close... I'll say the point of bringing up our country today, 4th of July is here, the idea of church and state, kingdoms, as it relates to our text, and the reward of exaltation, I want to encourage you in two ways, okay? Number one, Jesus is going to get what he's due, which is the reward of his exaltation at his second coming, okay? As promised and predicted, the Messiah and Son of God is going to come as a judge and as a ruling, reigning Lord and King on earth who is going to conquer Satan once and for all. Amen? Amen. It's what it says. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Second encouragement. The kingdom that's going to be at that time on earth will be rewarded regardless of the future of this nation. Justice, righteousness, peace, glory, and joy is coming to God's people. And he has a way of giving us glimpses of this, by the way, of his justice. Check this out. The French philosopher Voltaire, he once predicted that Christianity would be swept from existence within a hundred years. Yet, 50 years after he died in 1779, the German Bible Society actually occupied Voltaire's house and was using his printing press to print stacks of Bibles. I love that story. And during World War II, Hitler erected this massive stone structure in Monte Carlo. It was supposed to be a radio station eventually, he dreamed about that would broadcast Nazi propaganda into North Africa. Today, from that very building, Transworld Radio still broadcasts the gospel of Christ all across Europe and into Russia and Africa. I think those events are just like a little hint 
of the last word Jesus is going to have at the end of the age when he comes back. That's what this text is about. When evil prospers and looks like it's going to defeat the truth, I, don't, I want to tell you, don't be discouraged. No worries. When you're treated unjustly like the Lord was, no worries. The time is coming that you're going to be exalted and rewarded like the Lord Jesus. That's our hope. God gets the final word. The proud will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we pray, we pray as your word directs us in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we make supplications, prayers, intercessions with thanksgiving for all people, including kings. And in our context today, that's all those that are in high positions. Local city and county commissioners, the state legislature, the governor of the state of Florida, Congress, the Supreme Court, the president and his administration. We pray, I pray for them every week, Lord, for their souls, and I pray for common grace upon them that they would help us to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, because this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of you, Lord, our God our God and Savior. You desire all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Lord, I conclude this prayer again right from your words at the end of the book, Revelation, that blessed day, the hope of glory, where you said, Lord, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this book. You are the Alpha and the Omega, Lord Jesus. You are the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And blessed are those who wash their robes, meaning their righteousness, in Christ, because we will have the right to the tree of life and we would enter the city by the gates. And you, Lord Jesus, you say, surely I am coming soon. And we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with every one of us here today. Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.com.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 